If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, we are slowly working our way through it, but Lord willing, I think we'll get through the whole chapter. Ecclesiastes 4. And <laughs> let us read the, the whole chapter. <laughs> I tell you, deacons are the worst, I'm telling you. It's... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell your wife tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Ecclesiastes 4, if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, but better then both is he who has not yet been born has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after a win. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietus than two hands full of toil and striving after a wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no into all of his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks for whom am i toiling and depriving myself of pleasure this also is vanity and an unhappy business two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil for if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to one who is alone when he falls and has not another lift him up again if two lie together they keep warm how can one keep warm alone and though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will withstand him a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than, than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. And those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our mouths. Speak the truth of the gospel, understand it, apply it. Uh, this is a tough text, uh, but yet it forces us to confront the world in which we live. May we be found faithful readers, interpreters, and uh, may we apply it to our lives. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Proceeded. Is anyone familiar with Coney 2012? Anyone remember that? Anyone on the internet in 2012? No? Um, it's hardly been eight, eight years ago. Uh, we, we were uh, still new parents, still had that new parent spell. We had a one-year-old at, at the time. Uh, Coney 2012 was a viral justice movement that sought to uh, eliminate uh, through uh, making a African warlord famous. A man by the name of Joseph Coney. Joseph Coney uh, is is a uh, terrorist, essentially a domestic terrorist there in Africa, in the Uganda uh, sort of area. Uh, he covers really about three or four different nations, and he would go and uh, 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 slaughter adults, kidnap children. He would turn little boys into soldiers, and he would turn the little girls into slaves. And uh, a group called Invisible Children. Uh, had gone over to Uganda and 
discover just how bad uh, this, this, this was in the area. And so they sought to eliminate uh, Joseph Coney and uh, his movement by uh, having the international community take him seriously. And so the purpose of Coney 2012, I think in March of that year, they released a viral video uh, that uh, one was one of, the, one of the most watched videos. I think it was the most watched video of YouTube at the time. Um, and what you would do is, is upon watching the video, uh, you would then go to their Invisible Children website. You would order a kit. And in the kit comes a T-shirt, a sticker, a poster, and I think a bracelet and whatnot. And on a specific day... Uh, uh, people around the world were going to take their posters and stickers and uh, uh, basically uh, ruin public property and, and uh, post these, these posters everywhere. They were hoping to get millions of people to, to do this in an effort that if Joseph Coney became famous, the international community would then seek to eradicate him. If we were all talking about Joseph Coney, Remember, this is uh, 11 years after 9-11, uh, a Iraq war still going on, all that sort of stuff. And they wanted uh, uh, the world to take notice of this barbaric man. Well, uh, people bought their kits. I believe over $20 million was raised to, to help children in, in, in that part of Africa who were affected by Joseph Coney and, and his, his group. Yet, because of controversy and everything else, uh, the movement didn't actually take place. In fact, to this day, Joseph Coney is still alive. His movement is very much more diminished, mostly because he's type 2 di diabetic and he's not exactly welcome at a local hospital. Uh, but at the same time, Invisible Children is deceased. The group is no longer around. Uh, what started as a promising movement to, to end uh, true injustice and oppression uh, didn't work out in the end. But when you, if you were to go back and watch that video now, it, it still uh, uh, has incredible numbers attached to it. I think we would uh, understand why Invisible Children was started and that their motives, I really believe, were, were, were good motives. And, and, but we see here that the, the move towards justice is a human one. Even in the secular West, this drive towards justice, borrowed from Christianity, I would add, consumes a significant amount of our energy today. Uh, we, we want to believe that the decisions we're making, uh, the, the products we buy, the food we eat, uh, do not contribute to injustice. Uh, several months ago, uh, one of our church members and I went to a, uh, essentially an apologetic evangelist, uh, evangelism sort of conference, KBC put on as a one-day thing, just a couple hours, and uh, they showed um, a, a commercial. I believe it was a... Um, um, oh, the term just left me. I always want to call it Valvoline, but it's not Valvoline. What's the little stuff you can rub on? Yes, that. Thank you. I call it Valvoline. Start as a joke, and now I call it Valvoline all the time. What, what, is that a sign of, of, of age? I don't know. But anyway, so, so it showed a commercial for that company that I can't, can, never can remember in the 1980s. In the 1980s, it was all about, if you apply this, it'll fix all your problems in the world. Right? You, 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 you've got, you, you've got some, some sore spots on, on your elbows. Rub that on there. It'll go uh, away. You, 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 you've got uh, the wrong guy in power. Just rub that on, and that'll just go away by the next election. I mean, it, it, it was presented as if it would solve everything in the world. But then they showed a commercial of like a year ago. 
And what was different was it's the same company with the same design and the same product. I don't think they've added to their product as far as I can tell. It's the same thing they had in the 1980s, except now the commercial was less about what this product can do for you in solving all your problems. Now it was a global product, they said, and that in, 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 in buying this product, you're, you're feeding children in Africa. You're stopping warlords in, in South America, and you're, you're doing this and that. And, and, and the, the speaker wanted us to see the difference. What's changed is that we have this human desire to see the world change, to see oppression in and justice fall down like rain. And yet right now, right now, there is violence in the streets protest in capitals, and hopes put in two aging men who cannot put a sentence together by themselves, all in an effort to see justice come, don't we? The people who are, who are throwing Molotov cocktails aren't doing it just because they're bored, though that may explain some of it, but because they believe an injustice has taken place. There are people who are gathering for protest, gathering for, 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 for uh, having their voice be heard, all because the desire to see justice is a human desire. But it is equally human, not only to see justice, but to also oppress and to empower. Is this not what separates the young from the mature? Think about you, you children from the 1960s. You may be embarrassed to, to, to confess as much, and I understand that. But chances are in the 1960s, what were you doing? Maybe you spent your youth rebelling against the man, and now you discover you are the man. And now your grandchildren are rebelling against you. But you children of the new millennium, enjoy your youth of rebellion. But it will not be long before you would exchange Molotov cocktails for ties, keyboards, and real cocktails. But you see, the move towards justice is a righteous effort. The problem is, is that it requires broken humans in a broken world for justice to appear. This is the lament of Solomon, the critic here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Notice he discussed the, the reality in these opening three verses. He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. You, you can see the heartache of the king here, can't you? Though he possesses all the power of Israel, yet he is powerless against the violence of man against his fellow man. We should really pause and consider, given the history of the world, just it is incredible what mankind will do to fellow mankind. And to think that because we're America, we're exempt from that is foolishness. Here's the king. He looks out at all of it and he is dumbfounded by what it is he discovers. I mean, is there a better summarization of the injustice of our age than this in verse 1? Oppression works because oppressors possess all the power. They use influence, cultural norms, fear, and the power of the state to oppress the weak and the innocent. For reasons I hope to reveal in a few months around Christmas time, I've been doing a lot of research on Reconstruction in Kentucky. And, and that was a very violent, bloody, and evil time for our country. 
Uh, we often think that when the Civil War ended at Appomattox, or maybe even Lincoln was assassinated, there was a clear break, right? So we got all of that stuff out of the way. Reconstruction happens, and it was all an economic effort on behalf of the government. That's not the case at all. There were many people on the South who wanted the rebels to rise again, many people on the North who wanted to subjugate and oppress the South because of, of all the loss of, 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 of the Civil War. Well, one of the movements that comes out of Reconstruction is, of course, the Ku Klux Klan. Started in, in Tennessee in, in, in eight. 1865 or 66, makes its way up to Kentucky in 1868. I, I believe my dates are right there. And the reason such domestic terrorist movements, and there is more than just the KKK, the reason they were able to perpetuate the acts they did, and they were very violent and very rough to read through. I've read through some first-person accounts, and they're quite difficult to get through, honestly. The reason they were able to do that is because they trusted the system of oppression was on their side. So one of the things they would do is wear masks. This is the whole point of the hood. If you could not identify the person committing the crime, you could not arrest someone committing the crime. And whenever the community favored such acts where African-Americans were pushed out of entire communities, then they didn't have to fear uh, uh, prosecution. One uh, story that I find fascinating was in the little town of Monterey. This just north of here to get on 127 and you'll miss it, right? But it's there, right? The new 127 bypass it and, and it's, 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 it's not what it used to be. But, but there was a guy by the name of Willis Russell who lived in Monterey in the 1860s. And it turns out he was a U.S. Marshal. I mean, of all places to, to set up camp to, for a U.S. Marshal. And he dedicated his work as a U.S. Marshal in, in snuffing out the Ku Klux Klan in both Owen and Henry counties. And in that effort, in 1875, after saving numerous innocents, and particularly that of African-American lives, in 1875, he was assassinated through the window of his home while sitting quietly there. He died in pursuit of justice. Now we see this, this, this sort of oppression and evil in our world today. I mean, think about it. Am I being too political when I say that the destruction of property and the murder of your fellow man is unacceptable? Am I a racist when I declare that violence in the name of justice is not just? Am I being a Puritan to declare that targeting children for one's uh, gratification in a pornographic age of thirst is evil? This desire for justice is a real one, and it seems, particularly in 2020, this need for justice becoming all the more necessary. Do we not see that society lies on a razor edge between oppression on the one hand and injustice on the other? And we are fools to think it will all be solved if the right guy gets power in November. Come November, I fear that there may be more riots regardless of who the winner is. Because now the left doesn't like the guy on the right and the right don't like the guy on the left. Remember, the Declaration of Independence assumes that we want to be governed. But what happens when half the nation doesn't want to be governed by the ones that the other half wants? If you think it's all going to be solved in election, you, 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 you are a fool. There may be more economic problems as a result, which will only feed more hatred and more cultural rots. If you want to understand the rot of American evangelicalism, one of the things I think we can point to is that for decades we have trusted in the system. We have trusted in politicians. We have trusted in the courts rather than in the Savior. Who will comfort the oppressed is the question Solomon's asking. 
When will justice finally rain down in this evil age? In fact, the critic says that this world is so unjust that it's tempting to just want to leave it behind. Notice what he says there in verse 2 and 3. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I think we can understand that, can't we? I mean, you've heard me say that I want Jesus to come back like yesterday. I mean, I look forward to the day in 80 years that I finally walk my daughter down the aisle. Um, I look for the day that kids graduate and they start new lives and uh, there's grandkids 90 years down the road. And, and all of that, like I look forward to all of those, those great moments. But I, I tell you, if I had to choose between putting up with more of this year, let alone this world, and being with Jesus now, I choose to be with Jesus now. Right? It's, 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 it's unbearable at times, isn't it? Well, I think there's, there's a number of ways that we are sympathetic to what it is that, that the critic raises here, that we see oppression and our immediate response is escape. We, we do this a number of ways. The first way we do it is, is we long for the mythical good old days, don't we? You ever long for those days? Right? And, and there's, there's a helpful uh, book written recently. Uh, the, the title is with me. He argues that, that the left and the right all want the same thing, to go back to the good old days. The problem is they define the good old days by two different uh, decades. For the conservatives, the 1950s. And there's a lot of good things that came to the 1950s. Uh, and there's some truth to it. The home was a safe and predictable places. So the average child you met had a mom and a dad, a biological mom and dad that loved them. And, and they were going to uh, live in a world better than, than what their parents inherited. Right? There was something good about that. right? Uh, but the fact that it was a good old days is still mythical. Because while uh, little Johnny may have a good mom and dad, they didn't have to worry about uh, Mr. Smith over the weekend turning into Mrs. Smith at school, right? That was kind of nice. You had to worry about weird stuff like that. But what you still had was separate water fountains based on the color of your skin. There's still segregation going on in, in the United States. It isn't just in the South. Two nuclear powers were aiming at each other, and children were taught how to protect themselves in light of such a nuclear attack by by covering their heads under their desks. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. People turning pools into bomb shelters. Sure, in one sense, there's there's a lot of things I'd like for us to bring back, like love and family. That would be nice. It's mythical to say it's the good old days. And the the liberals, the 1960s are the promised land. There may be some truth to it. Finally, we were taking issues of equality seriously. I still think men like Martin Luther King Jr. remain American heroes. Yet to think that somehow the world was better and perfect back then is mythical. How much brokenness today can be traced back to that single generation, that single decade? Can I give you just one example? And I'll have to do the best I can not to get fired by giving you this example. This man by the name of Dr. John Money. He's a leading figure. In fact, he coined the terms of what we now use quite in the vernacular, words like gender role, gender identity, gender studies, and gender orientation. This is the father of this entire movement we're now putting up with. And we would not be in the confusing mess we are today without men like him. Now, money was a fraud and abuser. He promoted open marriage, among other sort of licentious evils. He also defended pedophilia. I'm not going to read this quote um, Google it if 
with supervision, I guess. But perhaps the, the, the most famous case he was involved in was a case involving a, a little boy named Bruce Reamer. Uh, Bruce had uh, some issues at birth related to, he, uh, related to circumcision. As a result, he was castrated. And, and money counseled his parents to raise little Bruce as a girl. And what the parents discovered that despite uh, his gender supposedly, uh, that gender was supposedly, according to John Money, uh, uh, a, was a social construct. Remember, he's the one coining these ideas. Um, Bruce just wouldn't play the part of a girl. He knew something was off. Well, Money counseled the boys, which included um, some horrendous things. Again, I don't want to mention them here. And what he discovered in the end was that the gender dysphoria did not take. He eventually, Bruce eventually committed suicide in his 30s along with his twin brother. And what you have is two innocent young men die by suicide because of this one man's evil theory. And to point that out now would make you a bigot. So no, I don't think there are the good old days. There may be things we miss about the past that were better than what they are now. But too often we think that if, if, if we turn on our TV, we see how evil and unjust this world is. We think if we can just go back, turn the clock back, we, we forget exactly what that world was like, don't we? In some senses, we've, we've come far in, in, in some ways. In many other ways, we've, we've gone far down the rabbit hole. Another thing that we do is escapism. Is it me or have you noticed that the 1990s are cool again? Have you noticed this? Uh, y- y'all who, who are enjoying your superhero movies, you're welcome. You're welcome for that. I'll take credit for it. It wasn't the, the great generation of the 1940s that kept Superman alive. No, it was us who were, who were thinking we were going to be millionaire because we had that Batman comic from 1989, right? We were convinced that if we bought the comics, whenever we turned 30 or 40, we'd be multi-millionaires. Now, it turns out that may not have been entirely true, but we believed it anyways. And we alone, uh, by, by, uh, by driving our mothers crazy, uh, kept the comic book industry in, in, uh, in business so that 20 years later, you can get your Iron Man and Thanos. You're welcome, America. You're welcome. Um, I worked, uh, mowed a lot of yards for those comic books, and, and, and you are welcome. And uh, in fact, a few weeks ago, I had my son watch an episode of the old X-Men animated series. Y'all don't care about this. He don't like it. And the reason is because he doesn't appreciate that was all we had. Right? I understand. It's like 25 years old or something like that. That was all we had on a Saturday morning cartoon, Spider-Man animated series, X-Men. You all don't care about this, but I don't care. Right? That was it. Right? So you can, you, you, you can enjoy your Captain America. You just need to know we preserved it for you. I mean, have you noticed that Sonic the Hedgehog is kind of cool again? Let <laughs> I me mean, think about that. Sonic the Hedgehog came out because Sega needed, like, games. Right? So, like, how about a hedgehog that can run fast? Right? And it worked. And now they got movies of creepy animated Sonic figures. Right? You're welcome. You are welcome, America, for this. Here's, here's the best example of how the 90s are in vogue now. Okay? Donald Trump is the president of the United States. Let me tell you, the first time you ever saw Donald Trump was in one of two places, Home Alone or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, both from the 90s. Have you noticed this? The 90s are taking over, right? We're not going back to Rolling Stone, right, you 80s people, right? We're not, we don't have disco balls in our fellowship halls, no. But Donald Trump is president of the United States. The 90s are back, baby. Now, 
The reason I point that out is something I've been wanting to get off my chest. But if you notice how we are in a we are saturated with entertainment, why is that? Because there is a correlation between the rise of entertainment and the rise of escapism. The reason so much of entertainment takes us back to a world we know that doesn't exist or take it back to a time that, that we believe we really created. Look, superheroes are not for 15-year-olds. They're for 36-year-olds who grew up watching and reading these characters. It's escapism, nostalgia. We do this, don't we? Well, we talked about this several weeks ago in our study of, 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 of Ecclesiastes, that, that you, you can find that if you trace popular shows throughout each generation, they are almost always in response to what was going on in the world. So when John Kennedy died, what came out in the 1960s? Westerns, things that took you back in time, uh, uh, and other black and white films that took you back before there was this chaotic, violent world in which, which we, we, we were living in. So we think, if, if I can just escape, if I can just escape to a simpler time, and a good Western will do that, a superhero film that simplifies as good and evil will, will do that, where we know who the good guys are and we know who the bad guys are. If we can just numb the mind from considering the poverty next door, the hurts of our childhood, or the sorrow of a nation, then maybe, maybe we can make it to the next day. You can see this critic here is saying, look, I, I envy those. We don't have to live in this world, and we try to escape this world often. The third thing we do is, quite honestly, is that of suicide itself. USA Today, a number of years ago, had the headline, More Young People Are Dying by Suicide and Experts Aren't Sure Why. It says the rate of suicide among those aged 10 to 24 increased nearly 60% between 2007 and 2018, 11-year period, according to a report released by the CDC. The rise occurred in most states with 42 experiencing significant increases. It's a real trend that has been demanding for a while a serious public health and research effort to understand what is happening and why, um, says this, this professor from Indiana University of Bloomington. She spends her life studying suicides in adolescence. She hopes she has a, a place to... Uh, I mean, that's got to be rough. That's got to be a rough, rough thing. The suicide rate increased 6.8% per 100,000 in 2007 to 107 in 2018. Let's be honest, many people do want to escape this world. But that headline still sticks with you, doesn't it? Suicide rates are up. Experts aren't sure why. I have a few ideas, don't you? Nihilism has no savior. A constant barrage of bad news. Remember that bad news sells. Without a cross, we'll feed anxiety and a mental health crisis. We are rich as a nation, but we are lonely. We are powerful, yet we feel helpless. We are large, yet we all feel small. We're not far from where the critic is here, are we? We see the oppression. We see the injustice. And our response is escape. Well, quickly, let us look at, at the Redeemer, verse 4 through, 4 through 16. We will just look at this very quickly. We, we don't have the time uh, to look at this in any great detail. You'll notice the proverbial approach to, to this chapter. It reads almost like the book of Proverbs pithy statements, uh, and, and so many struggle to find a, a common theme. And I really think the issue is laid out in verse 1, the idea of oppression, and what comes out of injustice is all that you have here. So for the rest of the chapter, explorers, 
uh, this. So in, in verse four, we see the issue of envy. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, striving after wind. He says, what is it that gets us up in the morning? It is jealousy. It is envy. It is bitterness. That guy has something that I think I'm entitled to or I want. And whether it be a reputation or a brand new car or, or, or that perfect marriage, whatever it might be. He says, the reason you can't stop oppression is because I as king cannot cure a man's heart of envy. Doesn't matter what laws you have. Doesn't matter what systems you set up. Doesn't matter how loud you may scream and riot. The problem is the heart of man. He is envious. And out of envy comes all kinds of oppression and violence and, and, and power and, and everything else. But not just that. The opposite problem is that is indolence. In verse 5, he says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Uh, uh, Solomon is really good about uh, just tearing up lazy people. Uh, you read the Proverbs, and what he says about the sluggard is at times humorous, if not tragically true. Here, indolence, that is laziness, the, the sluggard, he, he simply folds his hands and waits to die. And let us be honest, we, we are in an age of both entitlement and envy, and both feed the other. We believe that we are entitled to what someone else has, and I should not have to work for it. By the very nature of being an American, by the very nature of being human, I should have that. And you, dear neighbor, you, dear elected leader, should give it to me. Envy and indolence. Not just that, we have the issue of greed. Greed, verses 7 and, and eight, again, I saw uh, vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Here is greed. Says we, we work and we work and we work. And why do we work? Because we want more. We, we, we deserve more. We, we, we require more. In here is the American dream, is it not? Notice he says that they, they, they work and they toil and there's no end to it. And they are never satisfied with riches. Can I give you some insight in human nature? Particularly you young people. You think, I am dirt poor, never get out of this. You might. I mean, we'll never make it out of 2020, so don't worry about it. But, but let's just say, right, you're making X amount of dollars and you finally get that career launch and you're making double. You think, I'll never have a want again. Can I give you some insight that every adult here will tell you? You will always live to uh, how much you make. It is a problem that every human being has, right? And so, so if you make $50,000, you're going to live with someone who makes fifty-five. If you get a big raise, you're making $100,000, guess what? All of a sudden, all those things you're depriving yourself, you suddenly need. Bigger house, nicer car, more insurance, more investments, all that sort of stuff. It's amazing. It doesn't matter how much you, you have. It's as if you, you, you don't have much, is it? We toil and we work, and yet it seems we are never satisfied with riches. So much so, we don't pause to ask this, this question that the critic raises. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? I am wearing myself thin. And what good is it in the end? Not only do we see envy and indolence and greed, we also see loneliness as a problem here. All of this is, is because we live in this broken, fallen, oppressed world. Verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. 
For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Notice what he said there. It is that loneliness becomes a problem in a broken world. Guess what is a pandemic in our world today that, that we're not talking about? That is the issue of loneliness and anxiety. You may have 10,000 followers on Twitter. You may have 2,000 friends on Facebook. You may have 50,000 likes on Instagram. And yet when you lay down to bed at night, you feel completely alone. How is that possible? We are more connected and yet less so all at the same time. Loneliness. Loneliness. But then notice how, how he closes it out here, verses 13 and 16, and that is success. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born. Notice, you go from, you go from prison to the throne. I, I don't know much about monarchy, but I would say that's, pretty, that's a pretty good career. I mean, Oprah will sell that book in an instant. You write that one. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There he is. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is awesome. And literally, he said, you can go from the poor house to, to the throne. And guess what? In, in a few generations, no one will care. Think about it. Chances are you know who your parents or guardians were. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Grandparents? Probably. Great-grandparents? Did you ever know them personally? Maybe. I think I knew two, maybe three. Great-grandparents? They were alive about 100 or so years ago. Can you name them? Do you know what they did? Do you care? Probably not. So who cares if you go from prison to the throne? What good is all that success for you? And that's just going to feed everything else, isn't it? What an awful picture we have here in this world, isn't it? But it's not false. It's not false. What we need... And where the writer is going, particularly in chapter 5, moving forward, climaxing in chapter 12, what we need is a redeemer. Is there any wonder why Jesus spoke of both a king and a kingdom? You see, we believe a lie when we think, just give me Jesus, just me and God. Be my little private religion, my personal Jesus. And that's Christianity. But when Jesus comes, he comes bearing a king and a kingdom. And so we cheapen the gospel when we only make it about getting in the heaven or my personal relationship because God is my co-pilot. Can I give you a broader picture of the gospel? We, early on when we first uh, came here, we, we, we spent probably three or four weeks on this, but I just want to spend maybe five minutes on this and call it a night because I've probably have depressed you, which is typical of the book of Ecclesiastes. There are three legs of the gospel stool. I think I've stolen this from someone. I don't know, but I'm going to claim it as my own because it's my truth, and you'll just get over it. I do know there are pictures like this. I don't know if anyone's used a stool, but what is it? It doesn't matter. We're talking about the gospel. Three legs of the gospel stool. The first is the person. We get this, right? Chances are you grew up with a fire and brimstone guy, right? What do you say? You got to come down here. You got to get Jesus. Let me tell you, you got to come down. You got to get Jesus. I believe that every bit is true, that you must do your own dying. You must do your own believing. 
We must embrace the gospel. And that involves repenting of our sins and believing in Christ as our Savior, which means an acknowledgement of who we are and an acknowledgement of who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. There is no salvation without receiving the good news of Jesus. There is a personal aspect of the gospel. And we hope everyone around the world receives the personal leg of the gospel. When we preach the gospel, it is typical, typical, we typically preach preach this gospel, and that is good, and that is right, and that is just, for people must believe the gospel. And, it, and, and in order, and we can't get the other legs without really grasping this leg. We must believe, we must repent. But there's more to the gospel than that. When we broaden the gospel out, we discover there's a communal aspect to the gospel. Remember, Jesus comes bringing a kingdom, and he draws people to himself. It's no accident that, that Jesus says, follow me. And when he says, follow me, they leave everything from their past behind and they enter into a community of disciples. This is why we have the church. So when people say, I don't need the church because I've got a TV and a remote and, and, and it's more entertaining, what they are doing is denying the gospel. You cannot separate uh, the gospel from worship with other believers. If you want to truly grow as a believer, it will be done in the context of a community of believers. There's nothing more, more powerful than my soul in my life was probably when I flew all the way to Africa. And in, in about four different languages, we sang Amazing Grace. Different languages. But it was like Pentecost was happening all over again in our little community, our little circle of, of believers. What an incredible moment that is. There is a communal aspect of the gospel, not just within the church, but also even outside the church. That, that, that it isn't just something we privatize, but it is something we, we want the world to see, the world to know. And this is the context of evangelism by means of discipleship. That the gospel is bigger than my heart. The gospel is bigger than these walls. The gospel will fill the world. And it's our responsibility to do so. That's why, why an incarnated ministry in uh, a ministry that builds relationships with the lost is so vital. The third aspect to this stool is the cosmic aspect of the gospel. Again, Jesus comes as the king, bringing with him the kingdom. The problem is, is that Jesus never ran for election. So maybe his kingdom is more than just something that can happen every four years. Maybe his kingdom is bigger than the kingdom of men. Remember, Jesus rejects when offered by Satan all the kingdoms of the world because all the kingdoms of the world weren't big enough for what it is Christ brings. Christ brings with them a cosmic gospel. When Paul speaks of creation itself groaning from this broken, fallen world, the hope he gives is that we, along with creation, groan for the redemption of our bodies, which happens in Christ, who has defeated death by being raised from the dead. So we have the hope that the, things, the way things are now is not the way things will be. You see, without this gospel, both narrow when it comes to the individual and broader when it comes to the communal and cosmic, without that gospel, we can read Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and conclude with them and say, I give up too. But when we look at the cross, we come to a different conclusion. Because God has entered into this oppressive, unjust world and suffered under such injustice for us. 
Only Christianity was founded on an event that was based off of injustice. An innocent man crucified, beaten, and murdered by the state, by his culture, by his neighbor. And we believe that is the hope we have in Christ. Look, the gospel has survived a lot of evil in 2,000 years. And it will triumph in the end, regardless of what the rest of 2020 looks like. So yes, on the one hand, we can look around and say, see, it isn't attempting to just want to throw up your hands. But then we look at the cross and we say, no, God's gospel is bigger than what is happening right now. Isn't that good news? I trust it is. Let's pray.